before we get started, why don't we talk to God for just a minute together. God, we do thank you so much for the privilege of being able to think cogently and logically through the origins of the Bible, to be able to understand where the Bible has, uh, has come from, its unique nature. Give us a real sense of progress in tackling these topics here tonight. Give us insight into every part of this. And I just thank you for those that are here tonight. I pray that you would uh, refresh them and encourage them and strengthen and bolster their faith and their confidence in you and in your truth. Pray for many that have told me they can't be here tonight because of uh, other obligations. Just pray that all of our internet and uh, focal point ministries would be able to deliver all of these things to those folks in a timely manner. We thank you for all that you do for us, all that you've given us. And we just pray for a great and encouraging, edifying, and equipping time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's review. Just shout these out. You know this. What's this step called? Okay. Revelation. God's thought, the thought in the mind of the prophet. Very good. No, no peeking. It's in the mind of the prophet. It's got to get on paper. What's that step called? Inspiration. We're working on that right now. Okay. It's uh, on a document, but is it really God's inspired word? That question is answered by this step we call canonicity. I haven't started that yet. We'll look at that soon. Now we got a text, and we know that this book here, the book of Romans, it is a biblical text, and it's got to travel all the way through time to get to us if we're going to read it, and that process is called transmission. And now I have all these texts on the table strewn about uh, hundreds and thousands of copies, and they've got to get into our, what we call our critical editions of the Hebrew and Greek uh, Bibles, Old Testament and, and New Testament. Uh, we call that step textual criticism. Now I've got a great uh, Hebrew and Greek Bible here. Uh, I got to get it into my language. We call that translation. And that's where we'll deal with all of the logic as to why we're moving to the ESV on January the 1st. All right. Now, you saw this on page 19, right? Did you get all those notes last week? And then there was a rumbling that I didn't understand, and that happens often where you rumble, and I'm not sure why. But I figured it out when I got home, and my wife said, you missed the whole section, dude. Uh, and that was this section here, supporting claims outside the New Testament, right? So let's pick that up, and then we'll get back to where we left off, <laughs> if there's any time left. All right? Supporting claims. This is page 19, by the way. This is the top of the page. 15, 20% down the page there. You see it? Supporting claims within. Now, third of the way down the page, supporting claims outside of the New Testament. All right? Let's talk about this a little bit. Church fathers. We call them that. It's not the best name that we could have picked for them. But these writers from the time of the apostles... Right? And the New Testament was wrapped up, as we'll see a little bit later, in the probably 95, 96, 97 A.D. Okay? To 150. Those are we call the early church fathers. Okay? We call those sometimes the apostolic church fathers, which I don't like that phrase either because they weren't apostles and they knew they're not apostles. But those folks, how did they respond to the writing of uh, Peter, James, and John? How did they respond to it? 
Now, this doesn't mean as much to me as everything else we looked at, but it's good for us to look, what did the church fathers have to say? Good, important for you to know that if you were to scan through the church fathers, you would find all 27 books of the New Testament authoritatively quoted by the time we get to 150 AD. That's very important. Very important for those of you that saw the Da Vinci Code years back and thought, oh, freaked out, Constantine made this whole thing up and got a bunch of guys to write this, you know, westernized version of the Bible. Eh, not true. Within the first hundred years, not even that, within the first, if, if the first books of the New Testament were written midway of the first century, but we got a hundred years there and it wasn't even done until 100 A.D., You've got within 100 or 50 years of the completion of the New Testament writings, you've got all of the books quoted by someone as an authoritative word from God. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Examples. The epistle of Barnabas, and that's in quotes because they knew it wasn't from Barnabas, but it was in his name and in his honor from 70, somewhere between 70 A.D., A.D. 70 and A.D. 130, this epistle was written. Two examples from this early text. Matthew 22, 14 is quoted in his book as Scripture. And that word, ta graphe, the Scriptures, ta graphe, graphe was the technical word for the Old Testament canon, and Peter used it even within the New Testament canon as referring to the rest of the writings of the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul. And now outside of the New Testament, they start calling all the books of the New Testament Tographe, the Scriptures. That's a big deal. Then they say things like this, Matthew 26, 31. That's another example from the Epistle of Barnabas saying, God says... And that's a quotation not from an Old Testament text. It's not an Old Testament text quoted in the New Testament. It is just a New Testament text from Matthew. And he says, this is what God says. Early in the church, they recognized these are authoritative writings. A couple more. Clement to the Romans. I'm sorry, to the Corinthians. Clement to the, to the Corinthians. This was before the close of the first century. This was written probably near or around the time of the book of Revelation. He calls Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them quoted and calls them ta graphe, the scriptures. That's a big deal. Refers to the synoptic gospels, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as scripture. And I could have gone on here. There are many examples, but he quotes various texts of the New Testament throughout the letter of Clement to the Corinthians and says, God said this, quoting New Testament. God said this, quoting New Testament. And there are several others. Some that are very strong would be Ignatius, around 110 AD, AD 110, Ignatius quoting scripture, as scripture, I should say, the New Testament. Polycarp was another one who loved to do it. And I add this one, not because it's replete with examples of calling New Testament verses scripture, but because of the name of the book, okay? The Didache, the Didache, and it meant the teaching of the 12. And it was the early church manual as to how to do church. And it quoted scripture. It was a commentary on how to do what the New Testament scripture said. Clearly, a deference and a reverence for the New Testament books as scripture. Here's an example from Origen in his book on De Principis. This is near the end either of the 2nd century 
or into the middle or beginning of the third century, he writes this. This is critical. And this is long before Constantine, by the way, right? 313, he legalizes Christianity in the Roman Empire. And in 325, he calls together the Council of Nicaea. That's what Dan Brown centers on in the Da Vinci Code, if you remember that whole thing. And that's supposed to be when they took all of these Gnostic writings and got rid of them and decided to put in these writings that we now know as the 27 books of the New Testament. And they created their own little Bible there. Nonsense, nonsense. Here's how the church long before Constantine, was looking to the New Testament writings. The Spirit inspired each one of the saints, okay? Each one of the saints, and in the context, he's talking about the writings of the Bible, whether prophets or apostles. Now look at this phrase. There was not one spirit in the men in the, of the old dispensation and another in those who were inspired at the advent of Christ. That's a big statement, to be right there at the turn of the second to third century. The Spirit inspired, there's our word that we're looking for, right? God breathed. Each one of the saints, whether prophets or apostles, there was not one spirit in the men of the old dispensation, the Old Testament, and another in those who were inspired at the advent of Christ. It's the same. That's how the early church saw the writings of the New Testament. Now, you'd say, well, they're just building on that, and other people must have looked at their writings as, as authoritative. No, they didn't. They didn't claim to be apostles and prophets. They didn't claim to have their writings bearing the weight of authority of Scripture. They weren't saying that their writings were thus saith the Lord kind of propositional authoritative statements from God. You can find some exceptions of some kooks in the early church, but you need to understand that all of this was recognized by the preachers, writers, and scholars outside of the New Testament saying this inspiration thing is applicable to the writings of the 27 books of the New Testament as they assume them to be because of the explicit statements of the New Testament about the Old. That it, it, it too, all scripture, was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the old translation said, or better yet, God breathed Theopanoustos. Good? We caught up. Now we can skip all the rest of that on that page because we've dealt with it already. We can get on to page 20. Is that right? 21. No, 20. Thank you. Try not to skip any more. If I skip something, you can let me know. So I don't have to find out at home when I talk to my wife. <laughs> Sit down in the recliner. Did you know you skipped a section of it? Oh, I hate that. Orthodox. Orthos. Orthodontics. Uh, ortho mattresses. Uh, orthopedics. Ortho. What does it mean? Ortho. When you go to the orthodontist, you want your teeth straightened, right? Straightened. That's what orthodox means. We'll use this from time to time in our study. Orthos means straight. Doxa means a, opinion or a view. It's the right or, or a proper view. When we say something is orthodox, what we mean is this is the traditional right view that represents and conforms to the data of the Bible. Okay, Neo-orthodoxy, and we'll deal with this perhaps later, uh, was the view, we did touch on it, didn't we? Uh, the, the new orthodoxy, we didn't explain it much, that grew up in the church of late was, well, this is the new way to see it. And we're even seeing that today in the new perspective of Paul, if you're a theology reader. We have all these new concepts that come into the church. Well, the orthodox view, the traditional view that conforms to the data that the church has recognized throughout church history, that's what we mean by the orthodox view of, 
of inspiration or of theopanoustos or God-breathed scripture. Okay? Great. Let's talk about verbal theopanoustos or verbal inspiration. And I've already changed that for the next time we ever use this notebook. I said I didn't like the word inspiration and then I printed it for you five times here. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. Verbal God-breathed scripture. Okay? That's the first thing. And the reason I'm adding these five points to Theopanustas is because many will say and have said, listen, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but what they mean by that is a statement that, that is not, it's not a full orb statement of God-breathed scripture. They, they believe it with qualifications. What the church has done, even as late uh, as, as in the 1970s and 80s, is tried to clarify, while you're trying to make qualifications about inspiration, we're going to go and add words to make sure that you recognize we're not going to give up that ground. And one of them is verbal. Because it began very, to be very popular. Well, I believe that God wrote the book, but what he did, if he superintended something, he didn't superintend it down to the words. He simply superintended the concepts. So when I say verbal inspiration or verbal God-breathed scripture, I'm saying it in comparison with thoughts or ideas, right? No, I mean the detailed words. That's what I'm talking about. So when I, if I'm going to explain it here, the meaning, it's going to be that it extends to the words. God's superintendence extends all the way to the words. Therefore, the words, and again, all of these should be qualified with only one thing, the original documents, right? The words of the original documents that came off the pen or the quill, they were documents that were inspired, God-breathed, all the way down to the words. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? Matthew 5.18. Matthew 5.18. This is a good one to turn to. I'll try to make you turn to very few, but it'll be more tonight than we have in the past. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, who's speaking? What color are the letters? Okay. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. Now, did I tell you this last time? That's the yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and not the least stroke of the pen. That word there is seraph. It's the bumps, the difference between Rome, New Romans times and New Times Romans, I don't forget what it is, and uh, Ariel or Helvetica without the bumps. That's the difference. It says, will not by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, unless that's hyperbole there, what you're going to see is Jesus looks at the Old Testament and thinks that every bit of it and just for the sake of what he's saying here, I thought I would show you because I tried to describe this last time. And remember, not that this is a word, uh, but Hebrew reads from uh, right to left and not left to right. So you've got this word here. This is resh. And do you see that smooth little corner up there? Now compare it to that. That's the same looking letter, only it's got a bump on it. See that? That's a seraph. And in Hebrew, those are important because they change the meaning of that letter. He's now talking about you can't change the meaning of a letter or that middle one there, that's the yoth. Resh, yoth, dalit. Resh, yoth, dalit. The difference between dalit and resh, seraph. 
And there's a few others we'll get to when we look at common mistakes in the copying process through the transmission period of the text that often was resulting in that, whenever a word could actually be changed in meaning because of a serif. And sometimes that was a copyist error, more on that later. But that's what Jesus was referring to, and all those Hebrew listeners would immediately know what he's talking about. Not the smallest character, Yoth, or the least stroke of the pen, Seraph, would depart from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, a couple of passages here. You don't need to turn to them, but if you would jot them down, they might be real helpful to us. This one I want you to turn to. I said I wasn't going to turn you there, but I, I need to. I printed Galatians 3.16, and I'll show you that on the next slide. But let's turn to Matthew 22 because it's so long I couldn't put it all up here for you. An example of Jesus deferring to God's revelation being captured by a word. That's important. Not by a sentence, not by a concept, not by a paragraph, by a single word. More than that, more specific than that, than part of a word. So when I get these examples in, in your mind, we'll start to recognize, hey, Jesus wasn't talking hyperbole here. Even a part of a word wasn't going to change because God was governing even those parts. Okay, Matthew 22, Sadducees. Remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were leaders in Israel, didn't believe. They were the liberals of the day. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day, and they took the scripture seriously, and they believed in the resurrection. Wasn't many passages about the resurrection in the Old Testament, but there was hints, and there were some statements that got clear by Daniel's day, but the Sadducees, and we often remember it was the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection because they were sad, you see. Remember that? Have I touched that? Because this life was all there was. They were sad, you see. The Sadducees. Sorry. I've remembered that since I was yay high. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus, and they said, here, I got a question for you. Teacher, rabbi, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, I know you're thinking of your, your sister-in-law right now, <laughs> but that was how they did it back then. That's how it had to happen. Now, because they carry on the lineage and all the laws and all of that, they needed, needed offspring, needed children, needed heirs. Now, here's the question for you. We're going to throw you a little curveball, Jesus. There were seven brothers among us, and uh, the first one married and then died since he had no children, left uh, his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right on down to the seventh. Now, look, they all were married to the same gal. Finally, the woman dies. Now, hey, at the resurrection, you believe in the resurrection, right? I know. Hey, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? I mean, that's going to really create a problem. I can't imagine, Jesus. Come on, tell me who she's going to be married to. <clears throat> Let's hear what he said. I mean, that's, that was their, their strategy. Jesus replies, you are in error. You do not know the scriptures. Wow, that's big. Because if I were in the first century, I think you could have a little debate, were it not for that passage in Daniel, about afterlife and is there a resurrection? And is it real? And is it... Okay. He says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now he starts with the power of God. Verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. That just means they won't be in marital covenant contracts. 
Okay? Doesn't mean they become androgynous, by the way. That's a whole other sermon. There's male and female, and it'll remain that way, but you're not having wedding rings on your finger. Then he goes to the scriptural point. Have you not read what God said to you? Now he quotes Exodus, that scene with Moses standing there at the burning bush. Here's what he says. I, quoting that text, speaking, these are God's words, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Now, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I think for one reason, because he was a conservative when it came to the scriptures. Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose again, believed the scripture literally. And he quotes a passage that if there was no life after death, God would not say to Moses, who came 500 years after Abraham and say, I am the God of Abraham. He would say, I was the God of Abraham. Now, here's the deal. Liberals, even today, say the scripture is not inspired down to the words. It's only inspired in the concepts. And so when you read Exodus, who knows what really happened there? All we know is that God somehow got Moses to take the, the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. That's all we really know. And all the details of the story, like the sentences that came from the burning bush, we can't take those as truth. Jesus takes them as truth. And not only that, he thinks that Moses has recorded the tense of the verb exactly right. Because if it were was and not am, then there wouldn't be any proof in that passage for the life after death. That's a big, big deal. Jesus quotes scripture seriously. And having received another accusation this week, and it's really an accusation against you, not me. I guess I'm included, but you, you people at Compass Bible Church take the Bible way too seriously. Okay? always quoting it and stuff, you know? What do you think they said about Jesus in a passage like this? You mean to tell me you're going to hang your understanding of what's going to happen to you after you die on the tense of a verb? What if Moses got that wrong? What if that wasn't exactly what was said? Maybe he forgot how long it was it from the burning bush to the time he wrote it. And didn't God just maybe govern the, the general concept? No, even the words. We call that verbal inspiration or verbal God-breathed scriptures. That's a big deal. And it's one that we should take seriously. Abraham. Another story here, another statement from Abraham about Abraham. I'm sorry, not about Moses. Moses, we already dealt with Abraham. This is Galatians chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now he's quoting, uh, this is what, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, and Genesis 24. Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 15, and Genesis 24, 7. All of these talked about Abraham's promise to his seed. Now, Scripture does not say, and to seeds. This is Paul arguing to the Galatian churches now. Meaning many people, but, and to your seed. Meaning one person who is Christ. Now, Jesus took the Scripture seriously and argued concepts of truth on the tense of a verb. Paul took scripture seriously, and argued his theology on the number of a noun, whether it was singular or plural. And he's drawing a connection by exegeting even the number of the noun. That's 
Why, by the way, we're moving in the direction of a more literal word-for-word -word translation and not writing a translation into a more thought-for-thought -thought translation. Because the best we can do to get the word-for-word, -word, even though it may take a little bit more explanation from the pulpit, it's going to help us recognize exactly whether that noun was plural or singular. Whether it's, and one of the things the NIV is surely going to do, uh, which the TNAV had already started to do, is where you see passages that say sons, for instance, they will translate it sons and daughters. Now in the text, there is no and daughters. Now I know a lot of feminists that want to buy Bibles from Zondervan would prefer it say and daughters, but there's many passages where it's very important that we're just talking about sons for the particular theology of inheritance. And when you change and add two words that aren't there in the original language, we're moving away from the literal word-for-word -word text that God wrote. And because the arguments are down to the tense of a verb or the number of a noun, it's important that we try to get as specific as we can on those things. You can see the importance of that, right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about verbal inspiration. Now, if we didn't believe in verbal inspiration, whatever, get the living Bible, you know, get the picture Bible, the comic book Bible, it wouldn't matter. But we want to get into the details of the text. All right. The orthodox view is also plenary. This is the, and, I, and I hate to use words that seem a little outdated, but this is the word you will see over and over again, either saying, I don't believe in plenary, or I do believe in plenary. And I want to say this about plenary inspiration, that a lot of people, this is the kind of people that you know and talk to on a daily basis. They are the people that believe that God must have spoken in the Bible because it's just so amazing how influential this book is and all of that. So I believe that God inspired this text, but only the parts that I think he inspired. <laughs> Certainly not that part and that whole thing on homosexuality and the divorce passage, not good on that one, and creation. Come on, that's ridiculous. We've figured that one out. And, you know, I like this part, though, and the Jesus loves me verse is good, and I'll never leave you and forsake you. That makes me feel... I like those parts. But don't start, don't, don't start to harsh my mellow on sexual ethics or stuff like that because I don't think he inspired that. And Paul, he was a misogynist anyway. He didn't like women. Didn't you know that? He was single, wasn't he? Confirmed bachelor. I know those types. I, I, that, that wasn't inspired of God. Plenary, the word plenary means literally unrestricted. All parts of the Bible. That's what we're talking about. All of the Bible. Not parts of it. All of it. God superintended so that it would get on paper. Inspiration, again, we're talking about how did God get the revelation from the mind of the prophet into the paper? That first original document, did he just do the thoughts? No, he did the words, verbal inspiration. Did he do just part of what Paul wrote in the letter to the Galatians or all of what Paul wrote? No, all of what he wrote. And, and all the debates about gender-specific pastorate, for instance, uh, homosexuality, that's a good one today, a hot topic. Uh, those are things that people will excise from their text with their little sharp, you know, uh, exacto knife and say, well, I don't think that part's inspired. Plenary inspiration says, no, 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 we believe that's all inspired. And the verse that we are familiar with, we don't even need to turn to, is 2 Timothy 3.16, which started with the word, right, pawn, all all scripture is theopanoustos. It's all God-breathed. And then we had to extend that to the New Testament. We did some work on that to show you how the New Testament, as well as the Old, falls under the word inspired. And certainly the early churches we just talked about earlier tonight affirmed that too, and they saw that. Not to mention, here's another passage 
a couple more, and I put both of these in the overhead, so you don't need to turn there, but it'd be good to jot them down. Luke 16, 17, and Revelation 22, 18, and 19. And by the way, I hate to put in unnecessary things, but this one you'll need because you'll be reading your study Bible and you'll see Revelation 22:18 F. That doesn't mean F. Oh, that's like Pastor Mike does A and B and that, they must have broken that verse up into so many parts. And so that's part F of the verse. No, F uh, in Latin, there's, you'll find this all the time in, in numbered references. If there's a number with one F, it means and the following verse. If there's two Fs, it means and the following verses. So when you see, and I'm out of space, and I had the little papyrus there in the way, when it's 18F, that means 18 and 19, and that's just extra credit, but helpful. Somebody sat here tonight and said, I wondered what that meant. I've, I've seen that before, right? So that was useful for somebody? Yeah. Okay. Luke 16, easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen, right, a seraph, to drop out of the law. That's another way Jesus put it. That's a big deal. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. That sounds to me like plenary, God-breathed scriptures. Or how about this one? You know this text, 18 and 19. Again, some people say, well, this is just about the book of Revelation. Well, still, it's a New Testament text. And talk about plenary inspiration. At least I know there's plenary inspiration in the book of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away words from this book of the prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. I think that's a, don't, don't mess with it. The whole thing is there. It's from God. You better deal with it. Okay. That's why we're weirdos today, because we take the whole Bible and we're going to deal with it, because we believe in plenary inspiration. Thirdly, we also believe in inerrant theopanoustos, inerrant inspiration of Scripture, God-breathed Scripture. This is the big one. Not only is it down to the words, not only is it all of it, but it is actually accurate. God not only said it, what he said corresponds with reality. Or to put it this way, it was accomplished without error. It was accomplished without error. Now, were there ever any errors injected into the process of transmission? Absolutely. And we'll show you some. There were copyist errors. That's in the step of translation. We're not or transmission. We're not talking about transmission tonight. We're talking about the first step of inspiration when it gets into, into the text, when it gets written into codified sentences. Was it done accurately? Was it done truthfully? Okay, and that's what we mean without error. Which, by the way, sidebar here for a second, does not in any way, I argued with a guy once about this in a college class. This is a summer school class I took at the secular college. It does not exclude, because I believe in inerrant theopanoustos, it does not exclude Language of appearance, that's important. Language of appearance, you know what I'm talking about, right? I had a guy rip me up publicly in class uh, because he found out I was one of those Bible-believing Christians, and his thing was, hey, you've read the beginning of your Bible, and in the beginning of your Bible, it talks about the moon, and it calls it a lesser light. Durr, lesser light, durr. Hey, come on, the moon ain't a light, dude. He, that's what he did to me in the middle of class. But the moon ain't a light dude, right? 
I, yeah, this is a city college summer class. Um, my response to him, and I gave it to him publicly, was um, so, and I, I don't know if I caught him on this or not, this was a long time ago, but I, I, I discussed the language of appearance because he was Mr. Scientific. I said, so Mr. Scientific, I said, when you're out with your date and you're watching uh, the uh, rotation of the earth and you watch the big fireball of fusion there, uh, dip beyond the circumference and the perspective line of the rotating planet, uh, what do you call that? Do you say to your bride, what a beautiful rotation of the planet and the loss of the visual perspective on the nuclear fusion ball? <laughs> I mean, how do you describe it? And I said, or do you say that was a beautiful sunset? I said, durr, the sun doesn't set. Durr, what do you think, it turns off? You know? I didn't do well in that class. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? When the Bible says the sun is a greater light and the moon is a lesser light, just stare at them and you'll understand the point. One is very bright and the other one reflects photons off the surface of moon dust a little bit less bright than the direct light of the fusion from the ball of burning you know, gas in the sky. I get it. The Bible, because it, I say it is inerrant and without error, does not exclude language of appearance. It, does not, it also does not exclude approximation, approximation, right? When uh, we talk about Solomon's stables and he had 9,000 horses, okay, I'm not sitting there going to go to heaven and go, well, you know what, let's run the tape back on that and I want to have a little count here, right? Obviously, round numbers especially through the Old Testament, are round numbers. I don't call you a liar if you give me an approximate round number, and it's obvious it's an approximate round number. Approximation. Summary quotations. Summary quotations. Inerrancy does not exclude summary quotations. When you see New Testament writers say, as the prophet Isaiah said, and he summarizes a verse from Isaiah... And then I go back and I look at Isaiah and I say, that's not exactly what Isaiah says. As long as that approximate quotation is not a contradiction, I still can believe in inerrancy. Because inerrant theopneustos does not exclude language of appearance, approximation, and summary quotations. It also doesn't exclude, as the synoptic gospels have presented us with, differing accounts of the same events as long as those differing accounts of the same events don't contradict. And by that I mean there is a true contradiction and these two cannot be harmonized. See, when my two boys run in and they see something that happens with their little sister and they both give me a story and both of those stories are truthful, though one is from this corner of the room and one is from the hallway, I don't say, you liars, someone's lying to me. See? as long as both of them can be harmonized by the fact and reality of what happened to my daughter. Do you see what I'm saying? Inerrancy does not exclude language of appearance, approximation, summary quotations, or differing accounts of the same events without contradiction. Inerrancy. Psalm 19, 7 through 9 is a good passage for us to look at. And I didn't print this one for you, so we should turn there. 
once you jot it down. When we talk about Theopanistos, what are you talking about? God governed, well, yeah, he governed what he governed to put into writing without error. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. That doesn't mean it describes everything in scientific language. doesn't mean there's not round numbers. It means it's truthful. It, it corresponds with reality. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Absolutely, you can trust them. That is the truth. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and they're all together righteous. For more precious than gold, more than pure gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The concept of inerrancy is really an, a summary of that concept right there that is captured by the psalmist. Examples of this might be Luke 22, 44, Matthew 5, 18. Luke 24, 44. 518. I probably should have put John 10 too when Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. That's not Psalm 10 or John 10, John 8. Scripture cannot be broken. What are you talking about? Let's look at Luke 24 here up on the screen. Luke 24 on the screen. He said to them, this is on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, this is what I told you while I was still with you, right? That Christ would be resurrected. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All of these parts of the Bible, they all have to be fulfilled. You can't have any part of it that's not. Because if it weren't, it would be somehow in error. If the Psalm said this is what would happen, and if the prophet said this is what would happen, it has to happen that way because it is recorded by God through the prophets and the apostles without error. And back to Matthew 5, we've quoted this a few times, but look at it in this regard as it relates to the last phrase. Heaven and earth are not going to disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until everything is done. That means it's got to be accurate, it's got to be true, it's truthful. It is inerrant. Okay, now, this is a tricky one right here. Number four, infallible infallible. To be infallible is to literally to never fail, to always be uh, effective. It's something that you need to listen to because it's going to lead you properly. And just the re one of the reasons this word is used is because the Roman Catholics for years have talked about the papal infallibility of their leadership papal infallibility. And the point is, hey, follow what he says. He's not going to lead you astray. He will always lead you in the right way. He's the vicar of Christ. There's papal infallibility. Okay? The Protestants have said, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. The scripture is our infallible, inspired, or God-breathed text. It is our guide. It is our authority. So let's put the summary this way. I'm going to say, what is the meaning of that? I mean, it is an authoritative guide. It is, as some people like to say, the final arbiter of truth for us. It determines what is right and wrong, and it's not going to lead us in a path that's away from God's mind. Now, I said this was tricky, and here's the reason. Because when inerrant inspiration became the focus of the church to be 
distinguishing itself from the liberal trends of the church. When the church started to say, well, I can't take all of it seriously, and the church started to say, I believe in inerrancy. The liberal or neo-orthodox group started to say, hey, here's the thing. We don't believe in inerrancy, but we believe in something that sounds just as good. We believe in infallibility. And by that they meant, we believe that the scripture will guide you properly, but we don't believe it's without error. So what we have done in a conservative circle, as late as the Chicago uh, you know, uh, uh, Committee on Inerrancy, more on that in a minute, uh, is say, we believe also in infallibility, but we also believe in inerrancy. As they put it, they are distinguishable, but they are inseparable. The liberals say, or the neo-orthodox say, well, they're distinguishable, but I believe in infallibility, but not in inerrancy. So the point is, there's a lot of people that would say in more liberal circles, we believe in infallibility too. We just don't believe in inerrancy. And we're saying we believe in both. It's an authoritative guide. To put it in the words of Psalm 119, 9 through 11, which I didn't print for you, but I can read and you already know it in your head. You've heard this. This is the question of David when he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Right? doesn't say ask the leaders of the church or, you know, ask the pope or ask the prophets, right? It says, well, by living according to your word, your written word, the precepts of your word, he says, I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is the guide for how I live. And if I follow what it says, I'll be okay. And that's the point. We believe in infallibility of scripture. We, <laughs> me and the mouse in my pocket. Hopefully you do too. All right. Good examples of this would be Matthew chapter 4, 3 through 10. When part of the scripture was being quoted to Jesus, we don't need to turn there, you know the temptation scene. Jesus responds with the rest of Scripture to show all of this Scripture needs to be considered, and when I follow what it says, it will guide me properly. And to bow down to you, not right. To turn these stones into bread, not right. To fall off the pinnacle of the temple, not right. So the Scripture was his guide. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can the Messiah do the right thing? By keeping his life, or tracking his life, or conforming his life to the written Word of God. And that's what we do, and you can call us, you know, Bible idolaters, you can call us too into the Bible, whatever you want to call us, call us whatever. The scripture says that it should be the guide for our lives. So that's what we're going to do. Me and the mouse in my pocket. All of us. I hope. Number five. Eternal. Oh, you know what? Yeah, let's keep going. Last one. Eternal Theopanustas. Eternal this was added, I think, in most theological circles that are of our ilk because people began to say, I believe it was right for the time of the Apostle Paul, or I believe it for the time of Daniel, or I believe it even for the medieval church, but I don't believe it for the modern day. And it is, unfortunately, coming from the perspective that C.S. Lewis liked to call chronological snobbery. We really think we got it wired, and those old, you know, nutty guys, they're kind of just, you know, like the cavemen, who knows? They don't know anything. And, and so we're more enlightened. And so the scripture for us is no longer a binding, authoritative, infallible, inerrant document. It was at a time in the past, but it isn't now. And what we say is eternal theopneustos or eternal God-breathed scripture means it is perpetually relevant. It is always relevant. 
And if a scriptural passage is not clearly understood as a statement of the times, but is tied to a principle that is timeless, then it is an enduring principle, and i got to hold on to it, and it's got to be the guide for the way we operate. Just because Paul went on ships on his missionary journey doesn't mean I can't fly on a plane because the method of transportation on missionaries' journeys were never authoritatively given to us as a precept, and it was never tied to an eternal, overarching, transcendent principle. But male leadership in the church was, and male leadership in the home was, and that just is way out of conformity with the coolness of the day. But if the Bible says, this is the way it is because of the created order, and it's the way I want it in the church until I return, then that's going to be perpetually binding upon us, no matter how many people think we're nuts, right? That's just what we're going to do. And so we adhere to the concept or the doctrine of eternal God-breathed scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 8 is a good passage. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. There is no chance in the world. Are you kidding me? There is no chance in the world you're going to stand before God one day. And you're going to say, but God, here's what the word says. And we did it because it was clearly tied to an eternal principle. We're never going to have God go, dude, come on, man. Think for yourself. You, you, what are we doing? I was just saying that for those Roman guys and those early Christians. They weren't real smart. You, you and me, we, I mean, come on, man, think. That's not going to happen. The Bible says the books one day will be opened and we will stand in judgment. What books are those? Well, you got the book of life, right? Got the Lamb's book of life. You got the book that records deeds. And there's at least three books in that picture in Revelation. It's a library of books. It's a, it is, as Jesus said, it is not me that judges you. It's the books of Moses that will judge you. The written word of God is eternally relevant for us, perpetually relevant. Romans 15, 4. Think about this. This is 1,400 years, 1,400 years before the Romans showed up, who felt very enlightened, by the way. And it says, well, let's just look at it. Everything that was written in the past right? This is talking about scriptures now, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, as the Romans sat around with flushing toilets and marble palaces and a homosexual in the White House, that's how enlightened they were, okay? And they said, you mean to tell me this roving band of Middle Eastern, you know, uh, guys with sandals and robes who didn't know anything about our gladiator fights and everything we got going on here? You mean to tell me I'm supposed to read that stuff and it's supposed to have an effect on my life today? Absolutely. Just like they say about us today. How are you reading that 2,000-year-old New Testament? Yeah. Because the Bible says it was written to teach us. Written to teach them. Written to teach us. Why? Let's bring it into our day because the living, because the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the word of God. The written word of God, it does that for us. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. That's a scary verse. How would I make sure that I do all right on that day? Well, the verse in front of it is very clear. It's the word of God. It's living. It's active. If you read it, if you understand it, if you process it, it will convict you so that you can stand judgment one day 
and be able to have a life that is well-pleasing to God. It's a statement about sanctification, not justification, but it is important for us to recognize it is eternally relevant, perpetually relevant to our lives. All right. Because the last wave of clarifying inerrancy took place in Chicago um, beginning in 1978 with 200 evangelical leaders, I wanted to give you a supplement to your workbook. And we're going to pass these out right now. Uh, they are stacked like this. There's three pages per handout. And they're marked page 20A, 20B, and 20C. So slide these in your notebook between page 20 and 21. And it is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And I'd like to have one if I can have one real quick. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. 200 church leaders with a high view of God got together at the Hyatt Regency, where many of us have stayed traveling in and through Chicago, right? In the fall of 1978, Guys like James Boyce, Carl Henry, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Jay Adams, Harold Linzel, Dr. Sosi from Talbot, Charles Feinberg, Josh McDowell, Ray Ortland, and several others. And they had a time of trying to clarify what inspiration meant. This was the, 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 the summary, well, this was their summary of the fruit of their labor. They had two more, one on hermeneutics after that and one on application of scripture but this was the most important one and it's been known ever since as the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy and if you'll remember throughout church history and we're not teaching church history this semester but the creeds of the church were written in response to growing heresy and while Dan Brown wants to think that you know Constantine came up with his deity idea of Christ and kind of injected into the church through the Council of Nicaea. It's nonsense. The reason the Council of Nicaea had to clarify the deity of Christ wasn't because it was unknown. It was definitely known. It was just under attack in the second century. And Arianism had risen up to where the view of Christ in many people's mind was like, wow, what do we, who do we believe here? And the leaders of the church in, in the fourth century, put a council together and they wrote a statement that said, wait a minute, here's what we believe about the deity of Christ. And you can look at all those statements and you can see them clearly within the pages of scripture. I've only spent, a, what, three, three hours now, in, in three sessions talking about revelation and inspiration. Okay, That's all this was. This is nothing new. This is codifying the truth on inerrancy in response to the growing wave of confusion and heresy against the scripture and what it was. So what I'd love for you to do between now and next week is take a little time and read through the, the uh, 19 articles that they wrote. They're short, what they affirm and what they deny. And uh, learn to appreciate what happened there in Chicago not too long ago where guys that are still alive that some of you know were a part of it was, a, uh, it was a very important work, and I'm glad that they clarified against the, the, the heresies of the day. Not that many people have taken it seriously since, although I have and many others of our ilk have, but it's important that we, we understand these, these statements. So this is a detailed, helpful homework assignment I trust for you. Okie dokie. Wow, dare we go on? How's your rear end?
Let's call it a night, huh? Should we do that? Yeah, let's do that. Let me, let me pray for us. Once you get those. We're going to fly, by the way. Fly through page 21. Next time. Next time, we will. Because we got to get to the canon discussion next week. Let's pray together. Give you a break. God, thank you so much for tonight. Thanks for our decision about our uh, translation. Pray that we could have a, uh, a good and renewed thirst for your word, even because we are seeing uh, one of the latest clear literal translations before us. Um, God, we thank you for the work done in Chicago by some that have gone on already to meet you face to face and others that are still with us, kind of the old guard of those that have a high view of scripture. We pray there be many more young pastors, more young Bible study leaders, young um, congregants that still cherish the doctrine of, of God-breathed scriptures. And I pray we'd be willing to stand firm in your word because we know that in keeping your word, there is great reward, as we just read, Psalm uh, 19. So God, give us a, uh, a precision about our thinking because it really comes down to how we're going to respond to life's questions and crises and problems and the crossroads of our lives and how seriously we're going to take the word. And while some say that disdainfully about us, God, I pray that we wouldn't be, uh, be snobs about it, but we would certainly be, be loving and trying to point out that there's really no better place to be than to be walking in the light of the word. So make us good students of the word that we might, like Paul said to Timothy, study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, one who rightly handles the word of truth. Make that a reality for us, God. Thanks for this church. Thanks for this time. Pray for all those that couldn't be with us tonight, that they can catch up with us this week and get back here next week and we can continue on in our discussion and learning about the origins of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray.